Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week we sit down with renowned author, teacher, and herbalist, Robert Rogers. With over 40 years experience in the health and wellness field and close to 60 books to his credit, Robert discusses how psilocybin may be one of the more valuable tools in treating such things as depression, anxiety, and trauma. Sit back and enjoy the show. So you have a drink handy there? Yeah. All right, perfect. Well, to kick things off, let's uh, raise our glasses, a little virtual cheers okay. from Toronto to, uh, <laughs> to Alberta. Mm-hmm. Cheers. So again, Robert, thank you very much for joining me. Um, we had an amazing little intro conversation about a week and a half ago. And since that time, um, I've been looking a little further into you. Um, I did end up grabbing your latest book. Um, I haven't had a chance to read through all of it, but I am. I got to chapter eight. And so that's oh, psilocybin that's mushrooms. Accurate. Yeah, not not bad at all. Um, and, and I'm loving I'm loving it. It's a I don't want to say it's a simplistic read, but it's a very to the point read, uh, which I really appreciate. So it's uh, psilocybin mushrooms, the magic science and research. And you do cover everything in this book. Now, we're not going to go into great detail about the book. Um, We're going to talk about some other things, but the book is going to come up. And the reason it came up before uh, was because some of the conversations that we were starting to explore, um, one of those being uh, the legalization of psilocybin mushrooms, uh, which actually had led us to crossing paths, which is great. Uh, You are right now part of a team uh, working along with uh, a company called Xylorian and a number of individuals who are involved in different sections uh, as we start in Canada, the process of legalizing, hopefully sometime in the near future, psilocybin mushrooms for therapeutic purposes. Now, all that to say, You've been so gracious to sit down with us today uh, to, to, you know, maybe answer some questions and, you know, inform some of the population as to what's going on. And your credentials go back over 40 years. You've been working in the uh, plant medicine field as a herbologist for 40 plus years. You've written now the, the number may be off because it has been a week and a half, but you've written 48 books. Well, it's actually 58, but who's 50, counting? 58, but who's counting? Yeah, what, at what point in time do you stop counting? Uh, I know uh, that. Like... <laughs> some people remind me of that, but uh, yeah. No, that, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. So, I, you know, to say that you're the right person to talk about this from a herbologist perspective um, is, is, you know, selling things short. So I want to start with you first and foremost. Um, let's go back a few years ago, uh, at the beginning of all this journey for you, what made you decide to go into this field and, and click for you as something that you wanted to commit your entire life to? Well, we could go back different stages, but I, if I go way back to the beginning, um, my uncle in 1956 came back from the Korean War and he had tuberculosis. And uh, just before he went into a sanatorium, I was the only one in the household who actually became exposed and and actually had TB. And so I was treated with really powerful antibiotics. I couldn't find out the records later because the hospital burned down and all that kind of thing. But basically, 
uh, at a six-year-old, uh, really um, not well, you know, confined to bed, lost most of my hair, most of my, you know, follicle challenge up here. Uh, actually, that was from way back then. So that was the start of my journey, I think. And, uh, and I remember very distinctly uh, when I was six, seven, uh, that summer, going around the neighborhood, taking my mom's canning jars and filling them with water, and then picking flowers and flower petals and putting them on top, sending them out in the sun, and then after a few days and store them at night and then drinking the water. And at the time, I didn't really know, but I was actually producing my own flower essences, which were, uh, uh, many people may be familiar with the work of Dr. Bach and his Bach flower remedies. And so there I was, a six-year-old actually making my own medicines. And, and so it went from there. I went to university to become a medical doctor, two years of pre-med, didn't really like it, graduated with a degree in botany, hitchhiked around South America for a year. That was uh, kind of interesting. And, uh, and then I um, went up north with uh, some friends and we communally bought a, a quarter section with the house and kind of, so here we are 72, 73, you know, uh, back to the land, hippie commune. And, but it was really good for me as a, as a city boy because I finally learned, I learned how to, to you know, cut firewood, how to haul water, how to make a log cabin, how to, how to hunt, how to garden, how to wildcraft. And in that process of wildcrafting, I was very fortunate that on either side of where I lived, within a few miles, on the west side of me was a, a, a tree medicine man, uh, Russell Willier, who just passed away a few years ago. And on the uh, east side was uh, Rose Auger, who was a, a female uh, healer. And uh, between the two of them, I learned the beginnings of taking my uh, book learning from university and actually applying them to Northern boreal plants. And that's kind of been my thing for the last 40 some years, looking into uh, both their traditional uses, their, some of the ways in which they were used, what parts of the plants were used, and then validating many of these with, with our more modern scientific methodology about why they work. And so that's been a really uh, uh, an interesting journey and is taking me into places I probably wouldn't have explored otherwise. That's, that's remarkable. I think it's something that uh, everybody would hope to have gone through. And it seems as though, and you, you know the history of this uh, far better than I, I do, um, but it seems as though you were at the tip of when this was hot back in the 70s, but also being suppressed in other ways by governments and policy at that point in time. And then to get to this point where it seems as though it's, it's going through probably the second renaissance since the 70s um, and, and so much at the forefront. I mean, I just watched the new James Bond the other day and, and the unfortunately the lead villain, I won't give anything away, he's an herbalist. Um, mm. Now, obviously it's presented in a different way, but you see evidence of this at the forefront of popular media now. So you know that it has crested once again. Have we learned anything, Robert, since, since the early 70s? Uh, that... Well, uh, I would say that they're putting less people in prison for practicing medicine with a license. Uh, that was a real fear of ours in the mid-70s. And uh, 
my good friend Matthew Wood, uh, we've often talked about this, uh, that there was that renaissance then. Today, there's their secondary. I would say within the last 10 years, there's a lot of young people. Now there's tens of thousands of young people who have taken up herbal medicine uh, on various degrees, like some producing the medicine, some working in a clinical practice, but just infusing the idea of natural health into uh, the greater society and basically acknowledging that for a lot of people, big pharma has not really given them the answers they're looking for when it comes to maintaining and preventing problems with health. So there's, there is a big difference. And there is a second resurgence. Uh, um, I still think uh, we have to recognize that the FDA and uh, Health Canada both are really um, top heavy with former big pharma bureaucrats. Until that changes, nothing will change. That was something that you mentioned to me before. And of course, you know, a lot of people throw these terms around big pharma. And as soon as they do, it seems as though people think they know what they're talking about. But when you mention something like that, somebody who has, uh, you know, been in this industry and seen transformations, uh, my ears perk up. So yeah. one of the things, and, and we're going to kind of go around a little bit of these topics because I think they all kind of tie together, but we know that big pharma is an issue. Okay, we understand to, to certain degrees how it can be problematic and it's not a one solution fits all for all health concerns. Right. However, you're now in a position where you're working with a company to have something legalized within our countries. That's going to bring in big pharma, is it not? Yeah, big pharma always likes market share. They don't really care where they get it from. Uh, having said that, uh, there are two sides to uh, when you refer to the psilocybin question. Uh, one is, uh, there is, a, I believe, a difference between the whole uh, mushroom and its entourage, as opposed to a chemical psilocybin. And most of the studies and trials to this point have been with the latter. And uh, there are a number of people out there who are considering the fact that this mushroom has the ability to really shift consciousness with regards to anxiety, depression, post-traumatic, OCD, all of these different kinds of mental health issues, um, they really want to go the natural route. So there will be, um, this will go on for a few years, I believe. Um, uh, right at the moment, however, if we wanted to conduct a, a trial in Canada, it would have to be with the synthetic psilocybin. Your experience as being somebody who has used this in their practice. I know that the science side of things says we don't really have the evidence right now. We don't have the data to support whether entourage or single molecule or like synthetic is the way forward. I know that you have been using this in your practice and I have to imagine it's been successful or you wouldn't be still practicing. What is your feeling at this point in time, synthetic versus entourage? Well, uh, just to correct you a bit, uh, I haven't done any clinical practice for about 20 years. Okay. I had to make a decision back in 2002 uh, to continue a practice which I had had for about 20 years, or would I teach and write? And so I taught at a, a university uh, herbal program that I get to write and uh, present for about 10 years. And now I'm uh, on uh, faculty as a clinical 
professor in family medicine at a university. And both of those positions have allowed me to see both sides of the, uh, the coin. What is really happening is that there are a lot of younger physicians who are very interested in uh, integrative models, but there are not very many universities that are actually presenting what I would call really credible courses or, or people to teach these courses that can really integrate that. That is, you know, I'm as, I mean, not bragging, but I'm as comfortable going out into the woods and looking at plants and identifying them and making medicines from them and, and uh, spending time with indigenous healers as I am sitting in a lab or sitting in, my, in an office uh, with uh, other health professionals uh, talking their language. And so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of that communication between the two so-called uh, uh, polarities, and uh, I think we need more of that. Actually, how do we get that? We need more trained people who actually are are committed to actually ex exploring that, and we need public funds. That is, when I look at our present healthcare system in Canada, at least, what I see is that it is not a preventative health program, uh, it, it, is, is, it actually is treating disease. And it treats it in two major ways. One is surgery, which, and surgery can be necessary, and, uh, and, and drugs. Uh, you know, the average 60-year-old is now taking six prescription drugs, right? I'm 71, I don't take any. Uh, so the issue is that there needs to be a way to allow the public to get the actual community health related centered education that they're craving and wanting and utilize some of our healthcare dollars for that purpose. And I'll give you a great example. Um, about 10 years ago, I was chair of a, a community health council here in Edmonton. And one of our recommendations to Alberta Health was that we uh, take one, uh, the following year would be 1% of our health care budget for the province, which at that time was about $2.3 million an hour, around that. It's a lot more than that now. But in, in the, just take 10%, 1% towards preventative health programs. And it was shut down by the bean counters as too expensive, that they couldn't find a way to squeeze that in. Just it's very similar to the way that nutrition uh, in four years of medical training uh, gets uh, a couple of hours. And yet, what is more important than air, water, and food in maintaining our health and well-being? And so, so there is that dichotomy that needs to be addressed. It's so interesting because when I, when I speak with individuals like yourself, and I'm so glad to be exposed to people who have experience. Um, experience is a word that keeps coming up for me a lot and exploring uh, mushrooms, psilocybin in my own life, as well as through conversation and experience keeps coming up. But the experience also gives you that well-rounded view, similar to what you were talking about. You're not talking about, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't sound like you're talking about psilocybin is the answer to absolutely everything, <laughs> although a key to maybe a bigger picture. Is that a fair statement to make? I would say, you know, that uh, I've been studying and writing about medicinal mushrooms for, you know, 20 some years. And I would say uh, presently it's my, the one that interests me the most simply because of, of 
its ability, its safety factor for one thing, and its ability to really um, prevent um, uh, or deal with issues like anxiety, depression, etc., in ways that no other mushrooms do. Um, so yeah, so I think it's fair to say that it's my my present you know little obsession with uh, with moving forward, and I really believe uh, just like. Um, cannabis for, for a number of years, people were persecuted for that, thrown in jail for God's sake, and all kinds of crazy things for a natural product. Uh, Canada finally relented uh, due to pressure, including uh, people who were willing to take this issue to the Supreme Court. And I actually believe that's where this one is going to end up as well. And I think it has to. That was definitely something that you and I talked about. I kept asking you, I think I asked you four different ways. How do we get this legalized? How do we get this legalized? And yeah. you just kept answering the same way. We need to be able to get the community to be able to see the value in this and put pressure on the people who make the policy. There's a really good organization on the on West Coast called Theracil, T-H-E-R-A-P-S-I-L, Theracil. And they have um, managed to pressure the former health minister federally to, I think there's 30 some people now or have the permission because of their stages of cancer uh, and the angst that goes along with dying. I mean, obviously, um, but they have the permission to grow their own mushrooms. And then with the assistance of psychotherapy and, and uh, psychiatry, take the mushrooms in a controlled setting with great success. And uh, so that exemption uh, that's been given, there's, I, th I think last count I saw, there's 58 more people would like that exemption. And Ottawa basically is stalling out. They're not moving ahead. And so Theracil is, is threatening to take them to court. And they probably will have to. You know, very often um, the government has some blind sides to them. And, and then sometimes our Supreme Court needs to point out to them, uh, pardon me, you are trampling on people's human rights. That's what's going to change things, I think. I think the thing that always blows my mind is, is the, how much money plays into the equation of everything. That is our society. It's money, money, money. And I, for, for me, as I'm trying to piece out why these things end up being the way they are, why Big Pharma has so much power and is, is because of money, of course, and their reach and how much that money gets distributed to, unfortunately, you know, different levels of people and not the general public, it doesn't seem. However, on the back end of that, you also have the healthcare woes that us in North America face. Our system is unbelievably stretched and it's getting worse and worse now. Um, the money that's being paid there, it, it seems as though if you put that money into funding, things like this, things that have real potential and real possibility, then we can start to alleviate some of the strain in other areas, starting to make our society better as a whole. Absolutely. I, I think that a lot of where we have a depression, anxiety, and addictions, uh, they all stem back in, in, in early childhood uh, experiences. That is, uh, growing up at some point, there was a dysfunction uh, that then began to be masked by these other, other mental health issues. And until you actually straighten that out, you know, we're going to continue to have generational trauma. And so I, I really believe we have to start somewhere. So I, and uh, boy, COVID, I think, has really opened a lot of people's eyes to 
you know, is this really what life's about? Is this what we want to do? I mean, just look at the number of younger people who, you know, rightly, I believe, have been looking and go, I'm 35 years old. Do I really want to be a barista the rest of my life? And, and so there is that expansion of consciousness that when people start to do something they have a passion for and they love, they will be successful. And it has nothing to do with money. Uh, the money will come. They will be supported in their process. Whereas I think there still is a certain degree of mentality around go to university, get a degree, get a job, work at it for 40 years, you know, retire, live on your pension. Um, that particular scenario isn't working very well anymore. Um, people come out of university, you know, quite in debt. Steve Jobs didn't even finish high school. And so people are going, you know, do I really need to follow that old, old trend? And besides that, I believe that bricks and mortar universities are also uh, on their way, a slow curve downward. You can learn anything online nowadays. Absolutely. Um, I think, again, it's, it's just a matter of gathering knowledge. And from what I've experienced in terms of how you retain that knowledge and how you actually put it into your toolbox is in many ways, not just one, not just going to a classroom, but life experiences coupled with that. I mean, you've built a career and from, for all intents and purposes, you seem like a very knowledgeable person to me. And you haven't done that in one way. You've done that in several different ways by getting your hands dirty as well as being formally educated. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I in, in the early 70s, it was kind of like uh, my dad said, well, if you go to university, I'll, you can live at home, room and board free, or you can go get a job, right? And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll hang out for university. And, and university was good for me. I mean, it was where a lot of my socialization initially came from. I can't say that a lot of what I you know, learned in university at the bachelor level really helped me that much. I mean, obviously I learned Latin, so that was good for botany. But, but generally speaking, uh, once you get out and you start to uh, take information, I always say to people, you know, like uh, knowing that a tomato is tastiest when it's uh, red and ripe is uh, information, right? Knowledge is more like uh, knowing that a tomato is a fruit and uh, wisdom is knowing not to put tomatoes in your fruit salad. And so, you know, it's a matter of the steps, right? Without, yep. Like a lot of people today, I think it's still true. Like everybody carries in the palm of their hand, the entire library of information in the world. Well, that's, that's a big difference, right? When I was starting, you had to search the library shelves for, for little gleanings of, uh, of wisdom. So I think people have all of those tools. I think that what's still going on is that there is a, we have exhausted, I think, the, the height of what used to be a form of capitalism. That is people really are suffering and the one percenters are making gobs of money and wasting it on shooting missiles into, the, into space. And I only believe that that can only go on for so long before there's going to be a counter type of uh, evolution takes place. Okay, so then let's get into some personal beliefs. At this point in time, why are we in this rut as a society? We have, if we even go 80-20 principle 
of the amount of people on this planet and that are doing things with no sense of purpose and no real idea of advancing our society forward in any meaningful way, then why are we here? Like, why can't we just get out of this rut? Well, I think, you know, uh, fear. Fear is, a, is a really um, takes hold. For example, I'm just giving you an example that comes up quite often. Let's say two people meet early, maybe after university, they meet, get, you know, are tracked, get married, have a couple of kids, buy a, buy a house they can't afford in the suburbs, they each have a car, they each have a job to maintain that lifestyle, fire the kids all over to every event they want to go to. And at some point, um, I believe that that becomes some kind of a cyclical rut and people don't know how to get out of that because what if I quit my job? What am I going to do? One of the things that COVID did was it just forced people to go, I don't have a job. What am I going to do? And so we are going to see out of the ashes of this, I think some, some uh, new kind of sprouting of, of uh, ideas. I, I believe that climate change is the number one item of our our present time. And there's gonna be all kinds of great innovation takes place. There's a lot of very bright people out there that just need to uh, not just have faith in themselves, but collect around them a community that support their ideas and move it forward. And I believe it's starting to happen. I, I, I can see it in different areas. So I'm, I'm more optimistic than I am pessimistic at this point. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because every time I, I have an experience that makes me want to say we're going to be okay as a society something happens and i get let down a little bit uh but i but i always seem to come back to that hope so hearing somebody like yourself say that there is hope i like that oh, yeah. um i i feel for me again going back to experience and changing perspective uh that's definitely been my personal experience with psilocybin um it's been the only way the only way, and I can't say that I've tried everything that's on this planet and in different ways, but it's the only thing that has been able to rip the veil off of the cyclical nature that us as a species seems to get into and really start to expand your mind as to the possibilities that there is more to what we're doing. And that's the message that I've been trying to spread to people when I start talking to them about these experiences that I've personally had. Right. What I get faced with sometimes though, Robert, maybe you can help me with this, is the old, oh man, I did mushrooms when I was younger and I had a bad trip. Now, me personally, my defenses get alerted when I hear bad trip, because in my experience, I've had trips that seem to be what people would be considered bad. But in my mind, it's just, it's just a door. It's a heavier door than I've already experienced that I know if I can get through that door, there's something waiting for me on the other side that I had no idea about. But I don't know how to explain that to people in terms to say, just do it and face that bad trip. Is this where the model of what, like, of what Zylorian is trying to do with therapy and psilocybin and the what seems to be the new shamans which may be psychiatry or psychology is that what that would help bridge the gap for people well i think there are yeah you bring up some good points i think number one i think we can all remember back to to you know early uh, late teens early 20s where people are experimenting and they're taking uh, magic mushrooms as a uh, 
as an experience, as a, as a trip, as a something to have fun with. And, you know, I think that it's really important to note that uh, as you get a little older, instead of treating your, your mind and your body like an amusement park, it's time to start look, treating it like a spiritual temple. And so that shift used to be done uh, in older societies by shaman, as you mentioned, people who needed that extra little adjustment of the way they were thinking about their place in the world, uh, there were elders who actually could guide that. But back in the 1970s, early 70s, uh, when they put a, a criminal, criminal element to certain psychedelics, and it was heavily enforced and no longer were young people feeling comfortable to go to elders or to be held the experience with elders. And, and so they were doing things haphazardly because that's, they knew there was something more out there, but they didn't know how to get that assistance. So I really am a believer. And one of the reasons I really love uh, um, Zylorian is that uh, there's one thing to use a very safe, product like uh, psilocybin what, in mushrooms or, or even the synthetic compared to many of the other uh, I would say uh, more intense journeys such as ayahuasca or St. Pedro or some of these other natural approaches which really also should be well supervised but are I can tell you a lot lot heavier door to go through I'll tell you that and so, and so this is one of the safer ways to, uh, to look at things. Uh, the other thing is, you know, uh, we have a society that really on some one level condones things like uh, nicotine and alcohol, and yet on the other have, hand, have their handout for the tax dollars associated with those companies. And so young people are recognize hypocrisy pretty easily. I totally agree with that. And I like the fact that our eyes seem to be more open now than they were even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, one of the sections of, of people that I like to give a little bit of credit to are the millennials. Uh, and I'm not talking the early millennials, and I'm not going to also sit here and say that I'm an expert in this, this area, but the millennials that I, were, I was talking to were individuals that started to embrace the fact that we are more than just the pigeonholes that we get stuck into. You know, right. being a, a white male, you know, you can't cry. Uh, being a female of, of any distinction means that you can't possibly do math and you can't possibly stand toe to toe with a male and all the other examples, Black Lives Matter and all the other, like the, the amazing thing to me is when we sit there and think as a species, that just because you look a certain way that you could possibly be more superior than another. And I know that that goes back way back into our history, but until we start to get to that point, a la Star Trek, you're treating everybody with the same level of respect and opportunity. That's right. the next stage for us. I mean, that right. has to be continuously the next stage. And the only way that you can do that is through having these eye-opening experiences and these conversations. And that's why when we started to talk, that's what you said. You said conversations. We need to be talking about this stuff. We need to get people understanding the opportunities that are out there. And I know that it starts with policy change. And I know that it starts with that type of conversation. But I mean, 
other than that, we have to be able to push people into the right direction so that way they know what they're fighting for. And I don't really know how to do that other than having conversations like this with yourself and professionals that are pushing agendas that seem to actually be helping us as a species. Yeah, well, I, 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 I think you're right. And I think there's some aspects of that are, are correct. Uh, I would say in the last few years uh, that the, uh, the woke crowd and the uh, other individuals who are angry about everything, including the fact that why would they listen to an old white male? I think that's got to be stepped back because we have made a lot of progress. If you look at where we were in the 60s, et cetera, with, with civil rights and things of that nature, yes, it could be better, of course, but we've come a long ways. And actually antagonizing or, or basically blaming you know, the old white males uh, is not gonna achieve what you think it's going to achieve. It's just gonna create more uh, bitterness and division. Uh, what I'm saying is, that we should collectively uh, put our minds and spirits and brains together and figure out how to do this. And I, I believe we can. There are certain impediments. I, I really believe that uh, my brother always used to say, if you want to know why things are done the way they are, just follow the money. And so that is true. But, you know, collectively, we have a lot of resources, like where you spend your money. For example, what food you buy? Do you buy organic when you can? Because that supports organic farming, which is not heavily subsidized by government. Well, that's wrong. That's, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, you know, people have to drive cars where you have to fill up with gas. Should, should the government be subsidizing oil and gas industries? How ridiculous, totally ridiculous. So there is a place for action. There's a place for people collectively deciding on pathways, but there's also a place for getting engaged on what I call the semi-political level. That is, you don't have to be a politician yourself, but as a collective group, people can put pressure on their own MLA, their own MP to actually, this is the direction we want to go. And they listen. And they don't listen so much to little chatter, you know, in the popular media. They listen when they get a letter on across their table and they get thousands of them, they start to actually listen. Well, I mean, if we can get a couple out of this uh, episode alone, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, because I, I mean, I, I definitely I agree with you. If it's not if it's not uh, accepted by the population, the general public, then it's not going to it's not going to move forward. Now, I know, and my hesitation on this one, I, I do have a little bit, but we do have cannabis now, marijuana is legalized in Canada, and we can now go in and purchase it freely. Uh, I was concerned about that at the beginning, when I first heard about it. I've not been a marijuana user my entire life. This is a, a fairly new thing for me. All of this is fairly new to me over the past six, seven years. Um, my concern initially, though, was now that the government's involved and laboratories are, are involved, we're going to take something that is natural and we're going to distort it in some way, really robbing it from its, its natural properties. Right. Is this something that we should be concerned about as we start to take the steps to legalizing psilocybin? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, due to my inclination towards all natural products and and uh, including uh, avoiding uh, GMO type of uh, manipulation, they did a trial about hmm, ten, more than 10 years ago. It was a, a company out of uh, Portugal did a study in France on synthetic cannabis and six people got very ill and one person died of the seven people they trialed this on. And so that was the, that kiboshed pretty much the uh, movement into synthetic cannabis uh, by and large. That was a, like a real blow to the industry. That particular um, feedback with regards to um, psilocybin is not the same. What, what's happened there is a, a company uh, who will be nameless applied in the UK and in US for a patent for a particular crystalline type of psilocybin. And the UK turned them down wisely. The US actually gave them the patent. So now they have, if you want to use a synthetic psilocybin, it has to be via their patent route, which uh, a lot of companies are um, not that happy about, understandably. And it probably will be challenged. I mean, uh, but again, you know, the idea is you cannot patent a natural product but you can patent the technology associated with its extraction and things of that nature. And so that's the route that I would like to see happening. Just to, to reiterate it even further, I think, uh, within the couple of hundred different species that contain a psilocybin containing mushrooms, mostly the paniolus and the psilocybes, there are completely different ratios of the four most important components, psilocybin, psilocin, aruginacin, uh, cysteine, and they're all in different ratios. And it may well be, as we get into this further and we're allowed to do these clinical trials, that maybe this mushroom ratio is better for anxiety. And maybe this ratio actually works much more efficiently for major drug-resistant depression. And maybe this one's the one for post-traumatic stress. And so we don't know because those studies are not at the moment feasible to do due to uh, monetary restraints and, and, uh, and policy. And so I think there's great opportunity. I, I think it's going to be bigger than the cannabis industry, to be honest with you. From a use perspective and an experience perspective, I can definitely, I feel that way. I really do. Uh, I, I use CBD oil. Uh, as a regular, uh, you know, part of my regimen. And right. I believe in that, you know, extensively, I, I feel for me, personally, it kind of just peels back that little bit of layer of anxiety, and just allows you not to have that little annoying voice in the back of your head that doesn't help us at all. It's it's not protecting us from getting hit by a car or, or eaten by a saber toothed tiger. It's just an annoying little voice, mm -hmm. um, the brain doing what it does, I suppose. But uh, yeah, so that part of it, but other than that with marijuana, I haven't personally felt anything uh, more beyond that. In terms of comparing my experiences with mushrooms and psilocybin, which uh, like I said, it, it doesn't like, sure, the funny little lines and the colors and the all the you know that's great that's that's a fun little novelty but man once you get past the novelty this thing blows your mind wide open mm -hmm. um you know i i often said 
we had this experience where uh, we sat down uh, while experiencing some psilocybin and watched a documentary called uh, Samsara. And I don't know if you're familiar with the documentary, um, but this documentarian went around the world and took pictures and video of basically every facet of our existence from office existence to, you know, villages, to dances, to craters and all that kind of stuff. And I looked over to the person I was with and I said, I figured it out. And they're like, you figured what out? I'm like, everything. <laughs> I figured it all out, Robert. I mean, and, and, you know, all joking aside, I genuinely, genuinely feel that way. I, I feel that if you have, if you have this veil ripped open, and you're able to experience and have that level of empathy, I don't know that you can be racist. I don't know that you could be sexist, homophobic, anything. Exactly. When you're just feeling that, and that's the experience word that keeps coming out. It came out in your book several times, experiences and perspective. And so for that, speaking as somebody who, you know, this market would be marketed to, I 100% agree with you. I think the level of this psilocybin is we don't even know where it's going. Yeah. In fact, it's fine, interesting that as a the mushroom as an entity, some people believe it is here to actually help shift our consciousness. And and maybe these mushrooms have found a way to move themselves all over the world where they never were before uh, to help with that process. And so I find that kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I kind of want to go next. Actually, I want to get into the mushroom itself. I know that we've got a little bit of time left and, and this is where I kind of want to focus because you're, you're a man of not just, um, of an herbalistic nature. I can hear the scientists in you, which I love. So I, I'm hearing both sides of it, but the mushroom itself as an entity, as a collective consciousness, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's uh, been uh, the whole area of mycology has been very poorly um, understood and, and, and studied. Uh, I would say, you know, most people are familiar with the fruiting body, which is what we eat or see on trees and popping out of the ground. But the actual living organism, the mycelium, uh, has a uh, tentacles and, uh, and spreads widely throughout the planet. And uh, without that particular consciousness and its ability to communicate via serotonin, which interestingly enough is very, was only one molecule away from psilocybin, really. Oh, really? Serotonin. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. The receptors in our brain, the serotonin receptors, right? So fungi, plants, whatever, they all use serotonin to communicate. Um, and as they do that, for example, that's the way that uh, just about all plants and trees on the planet exist. The, the trees require nourishment. They require water and nutrients, which the uh, mycelium living right in or beside the root hairs of the, uh, of the tree, they require sugar. They, they're like ourselves. Uh, mushrooms are more closely related to us than, than plants. And so they actually need to be fed. And so there's kind of a deal goes on. Uh, it's not straight socialism. I would say it's like a, a form of capitalism where the, where the mushroom goes, okay, I need some sugar. And the tree goes, well, I need some water and nutrients. And, and then they bargain it out. And uh, sometimes the fungi will hold out until 
the tree really needs the water and they get the amount of sugar they think is good. Um, and then they do that. And, and not only do they do that, but they keep our ecology healthy. That is, for example, uh, wherever clear-cut logging is, is allowed, which I think is a disgrace. And, uh, and, and by the way, I thought it was very interesting lately in Scotland when they were the climate uh, summit that Canada has something like 23% of the carbon sink in our forests, 23% of the planet. We should be not cutting one more tree down. We could grow hemp on the prairies for all the paper needs we need. But these trees, uh, mother trees, they call them, they take care of the other trees. And when there's a tree is ailing or sickly or needs more nourishment, they actually will send a message via that mycelium mat to send nutrients over to that little tree to support it. And uh, this is work by a UBC researcher a number of years ago. And, and yeah, so the reality is that the communication is going on and it's, uh, it involves everything that's going on in the planet. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny because I, I know sometimes when I have conversations with people, their eyes start to roll when you start to talk about the plants and, as, as an entity. Uh, and, you know, everything communicating as one, but it just popped into my mind that the proof is, is there over and over again. If we allow for natural growth to take over, all of a sudden just things start to bloom, right? right? Things start to get better. And the only way that that happens is if all of these things are working in harmony together, the only difference has been our species. And I'm not here, I'm not trying to beat up on our species. I, I, I love the fact that we're alive and we can have these conversations, but the only difference has been uh, our disruption of this. Yes. This, this whole process, right? And yeah. that's, that's an insane to me. One of the things you just touched on was serotonin. And I wanted to mention this because as I was reading your book, you had mentioned in there, or, or it was mentioned in there that there was a certain percentage, it might be 90%. I can't, I can't recall. So please uh, correct me of serotonin is actually produced in your gut? Yeah, 70 to 90, they're not sure, but yeah. So how, how is it, I, I took some psychology courses, you know, so I'm familiar somewhat with the brain. I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but I'm familiar a little bit with it. And every time I've heard of serotonin talked about, it, it's all about our brain receptors. How have I never heard about serotonin in my gut before? I know, it's funny, I, about uh, 10 years ago, I was giving a walk in a ravine here and, and there was a, uh, a professor from the university who is in uh, in psychiatry, and uh, I said something about you know serotonin uh, is produced in our gut and it's utilized by our brain or whatever. He goes, he says that's not true, and I said, well, I think you should go back and uh, I said maybe you weren't taught that when you were in school, but yeah, it really is true, and uh, and so the microbiome. In fact, I'm working on a book with a good. A friend of mine who's an incredible herbalist in the US. And one of the things that it's about is about the immune system and the microbiome. And uh, as we start to study it more, we're recognizing that many of the foods, many of the drugs, the way they disrupt the microbiome, particularly of young children, sometimes to never recover, may be the source of many of the issues that uh, seem inexplicable, such as autism spectrum, or maybe things like ADD or ADHD or, or some other conditions. And in fact, uh, there's a, a, a very interesting uh, organism called Toxoplasmosis 
gondii, I think. Anyways, it's an organism that uh, lives in uh, rats and uh, it makes the rats not fearful of cats. So cats can easily eat them. And then the cats come into your house and they you know, expel this particular organism. Um, and what they found is they did a, a study with a schizoaffective disorder and they gave a drug in one clinical trial to a number of people who had symptoms of schizoaffective, but they also had this parasite within them. And in one study, 70% of the individuals in this small trial no longer exhibited schizoaffective symptoms. That's just one example. So what we actually know about the way that our, our microbiome and, the, and the, all the attached bacteria and other parasites and things in our system, as we explore that more, we're going to find that there's all kinds of answers to a lot of questions we've had about some of what used to be discerned as genetic related uh, health conditions may not be at all. They may be totally to do with environment, the foods you eat, the medications you take that disrupt certain issues, et cetera, et cetera. That's unbelievably valuable because as I've gone down different paths to explore different ways to get my brain and body to function at a better level, uh, there's so much misinformation out there and, and sometimes not even misinformation, um, of, of the ill intent, but people who are genuinely wanting to help people, but the information is so scattered. Now with the research that you guys are doing, are you going to be able to provide people with tangible steps to take in their lives to be able to better these things? Because it, I've, I always hear about the microbiome. I always hear about, you know, all the things that we put into our body, but I don't know, nor do I have the time to figure out how to almost live my life in terms of what I put into my body. Yeah, I think there is a, uh, I don't think Xylorians per se will be involved in that. Although the fact that I'm doing R&D with them, I, I believe that there is another step after the initial opening and expansion of, of the mind with psilocybin under the hands of a qualified physician or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, there is that next step. And that's part of the, okay, geez, I feel a lot better. Wow. Now, how do I eat properly? What's that about? What else is going on in my system that I can address? And I think that that definitely is the next stage. And you're not going to find it in the present biomedical model. That is until there is a different kind of a re-education or education at the medical school level, uh, we can't move to that next step. Or there's a lot of people, herbalists, naturopaths, et cetera, who have some understanding of this. And if they were actually included in, in our healthcare system per se, you know, as an integrated system, that would be great. I mean, why is it that dental health is not included? It's one of the most devastating things. It causes so much problem, so many problems with people, and yet it's considered a totally different uh, part of our healthcare uh, outside of what we we support and, and fund, and yet people can't afford it, right? So, so I think there needs to be a whole retake and remake about this whole issue. But I, I think things will come around. I really do. I like it. Well, I mean, with continued work from people like yourself. 
who yeah. have that hands-on experience and, and can speak to both sides. I think you as a bridge uh, to be able to bring all the sides together and then be able to sit down with an average bloke like myself and actually make sense of this is unbelievable. So from that perspective, I do thank you uh, yeah. very much for that work and the continued work. And I'm going to be following uh, the next book and the book after that and the book after <laughs> that. I'm assuming by the end of the year, it'll probably be up to about 70 or 80. Um, well, but uh, I would just, just on that point, uh, some of your listeners uh, are interested, if you're interested in the brain and the microbiome, a few years ago, I, I did publish a book called Renew Rejuvenate Your Brain Naturally. And uh, that goes right into great detail about the different receptors and then all the different ways that you can utilize uh, natural supplementation to restore health to for many, many conditions. So people might enjoy that book. Yeah. I love it. And I will actually, and this will, this will be the last thing, and then I'll let you go because I know you're a busy person. Uh, but if somebody is at that stage where enough is enough, uh, their their brain is not working the way that they want it to. They, it feels like they're betrayed at some point in time. They've got these nagging things that just won't go away, depression, anxiety, all that type of stuff. What would you say would be the first step that they should they could take, not should, but could take in order to get to a better healthy mind and body? I would say you can do yourself the most favor by finding a natural practitioner. And it doesn't, could be a naturopath, could be a flower, flower essence practitioner, could be an herbalist, right? Chiropractor. Uh, find a body worker, find someone who is authentically living a positive, meaningful life, who can present to you ways that are concrete, that can help you move forward, and that you can get some kind of rapport with. If when you walk into someone's office and it just seems like they're they're not they're talking off their hat or they're not talking directly to you or they're not looking at you and empathetic with you then probably should look around again that's perfect i mean you're talking about somebody who's actually living the life and is not just in it for the business or for the money yeah and by the way don't ever go to a, a, an office that where their plants are dying Oh, that's a great point. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. I love it. I love it. Uh, listen, Robert, um, I'm going to include all your information on, on this episode as well. Uh, I love the work that I've been able to, to uh, delve into just a little bit already of yours, and I'm interested in checking out more, of course. Um, so I'll be able to kind of shoot that out so everyone can be able to find you and you can advise, uh, as, as you deem fit. But again, thank you very much for sitting down with me and taking the time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to inform the, the public a little bit. Is there any last words that you would like to shoot out there before we close this out? No, I think we covered quite a little scope of things here and, uh, no, thank you very much yourself for inviting me. I, uh, I know that, uh, people look forward to your podcasts and and understand that they're going to get something of value out of them so thank you very much as well thank you very much my friend you have yourself okay. a great day and uh, we'll let you get back out there making the world a better place thank you <laughs>